welcome to episode 11 of Second World Problems, where we will first tell the tale, buried in the island of the dead, that which cannot be found except by those who already knows where it is. There be a chest, and inside be the gold. Take it all, spend it all, trade it, and frit it away for drink and food and pleasurable company. But the more you give away, the more you come to realize the drink will not satisfy. Food will turn to ash in your mouth, nor the company in the world will harm or slack our lust. We are cursed men. Welcome to Second World Problems, Episode 11. A world-building podcast. Yeah. This week, we're doing Pirates of the Caribbean. Thank you for that wonderful introduction. Rousing. This week, I am a monkey named Jack. And I am Mr. Cotton's Parrot. <laughs> nice. Oh, in the sale. Something like that. Amazing. <laughs> so the world um, of the Pirates of the Caribbean, we're sort of mainly focusing on the trilogy, but obviously there's other movies. There's five. There's five. Far more than there needs to be, in my and opinion. And a sixth with Margot Robbie. Let's not get into it. Yeah, we'll get there. That will be covered in background stuff, but um, the world is is sort of his pseudo historical, legendary, mythological version of our world. So it's not quite like it's not quite like uh, last month's Song of Achilles, which was like a fully mytho- mythological version of our world. Um, this is more like half half. It's like if the world was real, if the, if it is the normal world, but if like hoodoo and voodoo and a couple of other things were like. Based in real, like yeah, somewhat like real. like sort of pirate lore and ocean lore yeah. were sort of. Real. I think it starts off a bit more grounded and slowly it does. loses, and then its it loses, yeah, it and then it just keeps going. But uh, yeah, um, so it report the the film sort of reportedly, at least at the first three, take place somewhere between seventeen twenty and seventeen fifty, which actually puts it outside the golden age of piracy in the area of in the Caribbean area. So it's actually not inside that time period at all. The East India Company hunted them all down. It's the end of the pirate era. Um, but according to IMDb, the script writers did not intend, obviously, for the film to be entirely historically accurate. Like, obviously, if you've seen the film, you would know that because of the elements that go into the story. And that's fair, considering the golden age of piracy only lasted 10 years, from 1715 to 1725. Um, and also the prevalence of the undead, immortal, and ocean law in these films. So, you know, if it was entirely historically accurate, we wouldn't get walking skeletons, yeah, which is part of what skeletons. makes the movie great. We wouldn't get Calypso. We would not. The best character. Tia Dama is my fave. Tia Dama or Calypso, which is both, your, both at the same time? Yeah, well, because they're both the same person. One's yeah. her immortal form and one's her immortal form. True, true that. And either way, she's cool. Wait till you see my immortal form. <laughs> You've cultivated one since our last episode. I'm working on it. <laughs> you know, doing all those uh, deeds we ticked off. Yeah. Working through it. I haven't heard about any murders recently, <laughs> so that's good. Um, so, background. So, the Pirates of the Caribbean franchise started in t- 2003, which is a while ago, but they're good movies considering. Still hold up. So Still good. hold up. Um, with the first film, Curse of the Black Pearl, since there, since then there have been five films with a six and a spin-off in development. So the six, don't know what that's about. The spin-off is supposed to be all female with and Margot Robbie's attached to it. Don't know what that's about either. I don't know if either of those will ever come to fruition. I really don't care if they do. Yeah, I think I'm done. Many people, including me, who grew up with the, like, the first three films prefer the arc of the original trilogy um, to the newer releases. So that's sort of my point of view as well. Um, the newer ones sort of have a whiff of Disney's typical we'll keep beating this dead horse till it stops spitting out money. We are the enemy of original content and the public domain because th- that's what they do. They're, they're an acquisition and holding company for intellectual property. 
and they are also undeniably evil. But the original trilogy come, did come from a time when I was very young enough not to understand how bad Disney yeah. was, um, and therefore I really do enjoy the first three films. It's also like this movie is fully Disney in that like the idea and the conception comes from a Disneyland ride. Yes, like or Disney World, one of them. I think it's Disneyland. But uh, it yeah. So this movie, it's not even like they acquired it or like it was an idea that they thought. It literally is like kind of precious in a way because it's like connected to them it's like with it was a ride and like we turned it into it so it's, it's yeah. an interesting one for sure yeah but i just if i just yeah disney newer disney content really doesn't do it for me that much these days unless it's the mandalorian which is the only reason i own disney plus is to yeah what about milan though that was <laughs> um i prefer over the moon which is slightly better in dealing with chinese folklore but also Fair. a good movie <laughs> Um, no, I didn't actually watch the new release of Milan. I just, I could have, I, think I just don't have the time to watch things that I'm not that interested in. So I would rather just watch the original. Fair. Movie. Disney evil. Disney Check. evil. Glad to know that Zach, um, friend of the podcast also agrees with me on that. <laughs> um, I feel vindicated. So these movies are not necessarily inventive or complete because they're still going. Um, and they're, you know, not necessarily dealing in anything that's super inventive, but the first three are pretty good. The first three go hard on their aspects of difference, which is sort of what what makes them good. So the aspects of different from difference from our familiar world. So like the i the i the concept of the living dead is not a truly inventive one, but living dead pirates like that goes hard. Goddess trapped in mortal form goes hard like it's it's not inventive but it is delightful it's, it's also it's like great i don't know the thing about like so the first one has like dead pirates yes but like i living never dead I, pirates. living dead pirates i never Skeleton actively pirates. think about that i'm like man the first one was so grounded like that could have been in the real because <laughs> like you think about as it goes along it gets yeah. crazier and crazier yeah. even like to i've only seen it once the fifth one with like the trident of yeah, Poseidon bad, and, and then i'm like man the first one that could be real and then it's like you can believe like it's even though there's skeleton in there compared to the others, it they feels use so it grounded. So, they use it so, I suppose, in some ways briefly. Like they don't, they use it for the most effect, which means that they they have like, like when, like the bit where um, Barbosa is like, you best start believing in ghost stories. You're in one. And then he walks into the light and he turns into a skeleton. It's so dramatic. Yeah. But like the rest of the movie is very much like a typical pirate movie. It's about treasure and it's about rescuing the girl yeah. and it's about ships and it's about storms. It's just an element. It's part of it. It's like the element of like, well, there's multiple elements that I'm sure one of them will cross over with stuff we're going to talk about later. But it's like the idea is like, yeah, they're sc- it, it, it makes them more scary. Yeah. So they seem more of an enemy and it makes them, they, they've got a, re- it's kind of their motivation is this. It's like they have this extra superpower, but yeah. they don't like it anymore. They don't they're like it. They're it. done with it. But also it makes them immortal, which makes yeah. them harder to beat. Yeah. Well, that's the other thing. It's also, it makes them like, they're harder to fight, harder to beat. And also... It's kind of a way of showing the audience this is how pirates were viewed. Even if they didn't look like this, this is how they were viewed at the time. Yeah. Which is uh, something I maybe we'll touch on later, but yeah. there's a, the first episode of Black Sails also yes. has a way of doing that that yes. is similar, but it's more to do with face paint. Yeah. But yeah. <laughs> yes. They did. They In Black Sails, a very much historically based TV show, they did not have The Living Dead. No, they did not. Um, so Disney have decided that there is indeed much to mine from these films and therefore they'll keep digging until they have unearthed everything that could possibly interesting. They'll dig all the way down <laughs> to Davy Dern's chest. Yep. 
or possibly formed into a plot and then maybe they'll stop the franchise. Um, personally, I think they should have stopped at three and then the story arc would be complete Look, and the memory of the world would be like, you'd have time to miss it. Like when you go back to those, like, cause I recently rewatched all three. I finished the third one yesterday. Um, when I go back to that world of just the first three, I, you know, you, you, you sort of miss it and you want to live in it again. Whereas the more they add, it gets a bit crowded and other things start taking away from it. So it, it, it takes away from the magic of, of the world as a whole if you yeah. just keep extending. Like you need, you need to give people space to breathe and just sort of enjoy what you've created as a, as a whole thing. Yeah. Um, so before, they're not- we, before we go further, I will say I know you, you love the first three and I do I too. Unlike other people there, I have a soft spot for four. I see all its flaws. I just think it's like it's the moment where it kind of transitioned where I'm like, it's not bad yet. But yeah. it, it, it's going that way. But there was still some enjoyment in there. And I think, uh, yeah. It, I just I think th- the more they, like, number four wasn't too bad. It's just that they decided that they would keep going. And, like, there's they're not leaving enough space for the potential difference of the world to be compelling anymore. But also, like, they've, my my fundamental issue is that they've decided that the one thing that makes Pirates of the Caribbean interesting is Jack Sparrow. And I don't agree with that. I don't think he's the most interesting thing in the world. I don't think he needs to be continued to be carried over for the films to still make sense. And like four was all right because they, he, it wasn't going so hard on that. Like it felt like they were trying to move away, but they weren't quite sure how yet. But then six, they were like, no, we're keeping Jack Sparrow. He's what makes it work. And I, and I just don't think that's true. And that's another thing is like specifically with five and like four, and five and like, see, I I know people loved Captain Jack Sparrow, but I really love, and I know a lot of other people do, and I'm sure you agree with me. I really love Barbosa Bar-Bos as a character, is the best. and I think that he, you can keep him around and have like he needs to be. I like it, and I think that's they slowly made me like him less. He's he's fine in four. I just I don't know the wooden leg was like okay, yeah it's, and yeah, then, yeah he gets a and bit, him like all dressed up and like yeah, I'm like it's, it it's goes fine. a bit far. It's a bit it's a bit over I the feel top, like- and then in five they do the whole spoiler like daughter thing and yeah. i'm like oh like he's so good in one two and three and then four i'm like okay a little bit of a change but he's still like at heart i, I guess the pirate and then they're just like i'm like mm. the idea of barbosa's daughter is a f- is fine to me i think that makes more sense than it being jack's daughter which is probably the other option they would have gone with because it's disney and that's what they do yeah um i don't really mind that as much. i do think that they they realized how much everyone loved Barbara, so they're like, no, but we've decided Jack's where it's at. So they needed to pull the audience away from Barbosa. Yeah. Um, anyway, so it isn't as difficult to be consistent as we've talked about when you use the same cast of characters, in particular a regular main who has a thing that you can do over and over again. But like I said, in that case, in that in that particular case, I find that the consistency of Jack Sparrow gets less interesting because he's. He's the same. He never changes. He's just consistently more drunk, like more drunk in inverted commas in each film. And that doesn't really do it for me. The first film does a really good job of setting up the world in terms of both historical perspective and the differences. And that's why I think it's the most grounded. Like it's setting up what this world is. And that's why the supernatural is like a little bit more restrained um, and the historical is a bit more like they do quite good at like their idea of like, the the pseudo historical setting that isn't quite exact like the costumes all seem reasonably good and and it's all around like a specific a fairly specific time period so that works really well so the first film does 
all that work and then the next films play in the space a little bit more which I do enjoy and everything that's positive by these films have internal logical coherency like there's they don't until you get the further along you get they start positing things that make slightly less internal sense, sense within yeah. the world but the first like few like even up to four I'd say everything that they're positing works within what we already what was already established about the rules of the world in the first film but they're not always necessarily worked in in the best way so Port Royal is where one of the major settings of the films to a degree so it's an it's a city on the island of Jamaica it was once called the most wicked and sinful city in the world and was famous the world over for its booze the blackout inducing king kill devil rum famous for pirates and famous for sex workers so it sounds like a real party town and i'm yeah. into it um so jamaica had been held by the spanish since 1494 this is uh, the other thing to do with pirates is that it's a lot about colonialism and colonization which is not great um but it did give us pirates so you know at least it's interesting yeah. <laughs> um so it came under english power in 1655 after cromwell sent english raiders to invade and capture the spanish stronghold of hispaniola which is now Haiti in the Dominican Republic. Um, it was then the center of Spanish trade in the Caribbean, so that's why the English wanted it. Um, having failed at doing that, they then turned to Jamaica as like, well, we'll just take this instead. Well, I guess we'll have the leftovers. Yeah. By the late 1600s, it had become one of the largest European cities in the New World, second only to Boston. Um, it had also become the infamous home of pirates, sex workers, and Englishmen on the make. Far from home, they made their livings off the slave trade because that was obviously big in this time, one of humanity's terrible mistakes. Um, so slave labor in the plantations and the money that pirates brought in from their looting forays against the Spanish and usually the French as well. Um, the Small Harbors Association with Marauding began when the Jamaica's governors offered it up as a safe haven for, hi for pirates in exchange for protection from the Spanish. So, like, you can stay here um, if you, like, bring in your your goods to us and we won't, the Spanish can't persecute you. Yeah. On the morning of June 7, 1692, a massive earthquake estimated at a 7.5 magnitude hit the island. The city, largely built over sand, suffered instantly from liquefaction, uh, with building roads and citizens sucked into the ground. Uh, Gases erupted from the earth, buildings collapsed, and finally the city was hit by tsunami waves, dragging what had not been destroyed out into the sea. In the end, some 33 acres of the city disappeared underwater, four of, four of the five forts were destroyed or submerged, and 2,000 people were killed. Liquefaction, just never a good thing. Like no. when, when it's like, oh, it, it liquefied. It's yeah, very rarely it's a very good bad. thing. Very like, bad. If you would have like, oh, I liquefied. It's like, that's bad. That's or it's bad. like, oh, how's dinner? Or liquefied. Guy. It's like, mm. Unless you're that goo guy from Sky High, because that's his superpower. That is his superpower. But he's, he goes goo. He doesn't like, oh, I guess he liquefied. He does it's goo. It's There's goo. a different consistency, <laughs> I think, is the difference there. Anyway, um, Tortuga uh, is another one that repeats through Tortuga. most of the movies. Tortuga. It's a pirate den in modern Haiti, modern day Haiti for early buccaneers. So in the early 1600s, it served as a chief stronghold for a motley group of adventurous thieves and escaped slaves who preyed on Spanish treasure ships in the Caribbean. Um, as more would-be marauders arrived on the island, they organized themselves into a loose fraternity of thieves called the Brethren of the Coast and developed their own code of conduct. However, by the 1700s, it was no longer a pirate haven and was instead bartered to the French for peace with Spain. Because that's what they did. They owned these places that weren't theirs. 
weren't theirs by, by like... Yeah, they just own they, it they until just, the country decide, like, either they, England or Spain were like, you know what, they've had it too, let's take it back. Yeah, or they or they say, oh, I'm tired of this war. Here, you can have this island that we took from the people who live there and now it's ours. Yeah. Because we wanted easier trading routes. Um, so the pirate code is one of the big things um, that gets discussed multiple times in the Hang franchise. Hang the code. Um, often in the movie they say, they say, you know, to hell with the code. It's just guidelines anyway. They are not guidelines. <laughs> in real in real history, they are not guidelines. So, um, well, the main one that you hear in the first movie is Parley. So Elizabeth invokes the code set down by the Order of the Brethren, including Henry Morgan and Bartholomew Roberts, in order to be taken to Barbosa. When they meet, Barbosa asserts that the code does not apply to Elizabeth as she is not a pirate. The code in the film is not particularly well defined, though it is though it is likely taken from Bartholomew Roberts' code quoted in A General History of Pirates. And in the films, there is only one universal code that is presumed to be known by everyone and often quoted. It's the big book. Where in history, each ship had their own code of conduct, sort of like your work has a code of conduct. Well, pirates had a democracy. Yes, so we'll get, we're getting that. So it could often be revised if conditions had changed. So unlike the Royal Navy and merchant operations at the time, pirate communities were democracies. So we'll get in there. Um, so the captain of the ship was elected by vote, by vote and could be deposed. The crew decided the destination of each voyage, not the captain. So all those bits in Pirates of the Caribbean where, where Jack or Barbara is like, we're going here, not how that works. Yeah, that's, yeah they kind of like, the idea is it's like, yeah, you want to sail under this famous captain, whereas yeah. the idea of... The idea of actual pirates was they were escaping that rule because yeah. on commercial ships you were a slave to the captain essentially. And the idea is, no, we want to elect our captains. We yeah. want a full share. Yeah. So it's a democracy. Yeah. yeah. So um, the crew decide the destination and then whether or not to attack a ship or perform a raid or on a village, not the captain. Um, at the start of a voyage or when a new captain was elected, written articles were drawn up that regulated the distribution of plunder, the scale of compensation for injuries and basic rules for shipboard life and then the punishment for breaking them. Every member of the crew was expected to sign these articles, which differed between ships, but likely had some similar content. So, for example, something that might be included in the codes would be, um, like, injury payments. So, like, you might get 600 pieces of eight for the loss of a right arm, 500 for a left arm. I don't know why right is better than left. 500 for the right leg, 400 for the left leg, and 100 for the loss of an eye or a finger. Um, and that would be laid out in the codes exactly how much you would get. And then also, like, some codes would have – the most complete one we have is Bartholomew Roberts, and it had a lot about, like, how you would conduct yourself on board and what would happen if you disobeyed. As part of the code, the court of the uh, – as part of the code in the films, as opposed to real life, the court of the brethren can vote in a pirate king to unite the court and pirate factions – However, this rarely happens as each pirate most often votes for themselves. I love I love the idea of the pirate court. I know it's it's sort of vamping off the like off the ideas of many courts that come from like monarchies and then other courts from that are based on monarchies then extend into folklore and now have extended into pirate law. But I just I love the idea that the there's there's all these like nationalities of pirates and like they elect one leader and they're called the court of the brethren and they can vote in a king. It's very cool. It's cool. Not necessarily follow the following the democratic route that um, historical pirates had, but still very, very interesting and fun. So one of the main rules of the world is that 
supernatural creatures, pirate lore, superstitions, and legends of the sea are real, but in that they also have rules that they have to obey themselves. So, for instance, um, in The Curse of the Black Pearl, in taking the treasure from the island, the pirates were repaid for their greed by being unable to be satisfied with the material goods and worldly, worldly pr- pleasures they spent the treasure on and were cursed to become a form of living dead. The pirates' true forms of living skeletons are revealed under moonlight. The curse can be broken by returning the gold and the blood repaid. So that, like, the supernatural's there, but it also has clearly defined rules about what, how they function yeah. within the world. Again, Barbosa's line, you best start believing in ghost stories. You're, You're in, in one. So good. But also they aren't ghosts. I just needed to point that out. They're, they're skeletons, a form of living dead, but they're not ghosts. Yeah. Because ghosts have some sort of, are usually defined as being immaterial. The black spot, which happens to Jack from Davy Jones, in the films it operates as like a, Davy Jones is coming for you, you owe a debt, and he's going to release the Kraken on you. The black spot is actually mainly from Treasure Island. It does. It's not like really a, it's a pirate law thing as opposed to a pirate thing. It's so, just like it's kind of like a, a a final notice, right? Like yeah. A, so it's Robert in in Robbie Lewis De- Stevenson's Treasure Island. It's more it functions sort of as like a portent of doom. So like it marks the death of Billy Bones and then the attempt to depose Long John Silver of his captaincy. So it's sort of like yeah, it's sort of like a <laughs> you're done. We want yeah. a different captain, but also it, it happens to sort of feed the thing that kills Billy Bones. So it's also a bit more severe in that. Um, the rules for Davy Jones in the film is that he cannot set foot on land but once every 10 years. However, seawater in a bucket on land doesn't count. Davy Jones cannot die unless stabbed through the heart, which is separated from his body and hidden or kept safe by a close trustee. Gotta find the heart. Gotta find the heart. Okay. Dutchman must always have a captain. Dutchman has a captain. Um, so Barbosa has so many good lines, but this is another one of his. He says in the first one, he goes, we're not, but humble pirates. Um, there is a romantic notion that has been repeated over and over again in, in pirate fiction that um, Pirates of the Caribbean, to a degree, leads into with characters like Barbosa, which is of the noble pirate captain who was born an aristoc- aristocrat but then turned to piracy. It's also like um, repeated in uh, what is it that that one? It's that book by the person with the lady. <laughs> in the part in the aristocratic pirate it's very very well known um she did rule britannia it's like daphne something or something like that and it's called frenchman's creek or something anyway it's a great book um but yeah it's the idea of the aristocrat who then turns to piracy to find whatever to find the freedom they can't have in their normal life or whatever most pirates were young men in their 20s who are mostly ex-seamen who wanted out of the strict navy or merchant lifestyle and their bad wages, or they were runaway slaves. They weren't generally educated people. While pirate crews tended to be multi- multinational, many were French and English because of, because of colonization, and they often came from seaport towns, um, and they were usually from poorer families. Um, Although pirates did drink, gamble, womanize, and conduct raids, their daily life was very similar to that of vessels from the Royal Navy and merchant ships. Because, of course, most of them came from there. They worked those vessels prior to turning to crime. So there was the same need to have watches, lookouts, to take soundings in shallow waters, and to navigate. However, the pirate lifestyle was in many ways a good deal easier. 
um, though no less physically demanding than lawful life. This is because of the democratic structure of the pirate crew, the larger sizes of the crews, and award-winning wages. It sucked to be on a merchant or navy vessel. It was really bad. Yeah, it was not a fun um, time. So, like, for instance, a merchant ship of 100 tons would have a crew of 12, whereas a pirate ship of the same size would have a crew of 80 or more. So you've just got more men to do it. So it's it's it. the lifestyle is a lot easier. Like, it's still hard work, but there's more of you. Yeah. And you get... If you get plunder, you get more of a share. Um, Walking the plank is a myth created mostly from fiction. It's just not a practical punishment. Um, Most pirates use forms of torture. um, So if you don't want to hear about that, maybe stop listening now. Go go ahead about a minute. So they used forms of torture which were more common, such as limb stretching, beating people with sticks, burning matches between the fingers, and something called wolding, which involves, involves twisting cords around the head until your eyes burst out of your skull. Wow. Yeah. That's super fun. Yeah. Uh, although horrific, equally terrible things were perpetrated by captains of the Royal Navy and merchant captains. Uh, if you read Under the Black Flag, which is a, a novel that sort of talks, of, where I got a lot of this information from, it sort of talks about all aspects of pirate life. You know, it, they sort of describe some of the things that na- that Navy captains and merchant captains get away with, including, like, beating their ship's boys half to death and then pouring pickle brines in their wounds. And it's it's really bad what people got away with. So, like, the pirates, though cruel, were no less cruel than the law, than the people who were following the law. Yeah. And you got a better deal. You got a better there deal. There was maybe it. more of a sense of honour. mm Amongst thieves. Amongst thieves, to a degree. Um, marooning, however, was a very real punishment for crimes such as deserting the ship or quarters in battle or stealing from other pirates. So when Jack gets marooned on that island, that was probably a f- for a fair reason. He probably committed a crime against their pirate code and they left him there. One shot as well. It's <laughs> one shot. So there are lots of famous pirates. We're going to talk about some. Some will be more well-known, some will not as be as well-known, but we're going to talk about them anyway. So one of the big ones from the movies is Henry Morgan because he is one of the people who laid down the code. He's not actually a pirate, not not a real pirate anyway. He's a real person, but he's not a pirate. So he had a privateering license from the governor of Jamaica. So although he did commit acts of piracy, they were legalised by his home nation of England against their enemies, France and Spain. And then later in life, he became the governor of Jamaica. So he was firmly legalized in his actions. But he was sort of an early prototype for the captains of the Golden Age of Piracy. However, unlike unlike buccaneers like Morgan, because that's what Henry Morgan was, he was a buccaneer at the time, earlier, like, earlier in the decade than the Golden Age of Piracy captains, pirates were notorious outlaws regarded as thieves and criminals by every nation, including their own. So while Henry Morgan was considered an enemy of Spain, he was not an enemy of England, which was his home country. Because he had that license, Mm -hmm. that sick license. The letter of Mark. It was Henry Avery, not Morgan, who inspired many pirates in their depictions. So um, Under the Black Flag describes Henry Avery as the image of of our image of sort of a typical pirate, not aristocratic, not notoriously cruel, and a short career as a pirate. So he was of middle height, rather fat, and a jolly complexion. While the Republic of Pirates tells the story of his legend, um, which is 
So the Republic of the Republic of Pirates was the other book I used to research this episode. So after mutinying against the captain of a privateering ship, he renamed the ship the Fancy, which I love. It's a great name. And went went on the make. So famously, he raided the Gunsway, a ship belonging to the Emperor of the Mughal Empire of India, um, committed atrocities on its passion, passengers, because pirates, that's what they did, um, and plundered huge quantities of gold and silver. After taking this, Avery retired from piracy. Six of his crew were eventually caught, but Avery never was. The popular, popular story is that he lived out in luxury in the to- tropics till he died. But apparently he actually died in poverty back in England. But it's that's, that's the, that rumour and the story of his big take and the fact that he retired has inspired the popular legend of pirates and then inspired the captains who were in actually within the time period of the golden age of piracy to like he was he was their hero not morgan so obviously you've heard of blackbeard you you love the fourth movie movie i'm very familiar with blackbeard so he has the flares in his beard very he does uh flair for the theatrics that that are blackbeard so i'm pretty sure that that story the idea of the um the lit fuses in the beard came from a general history of pirates which was the first historically published book on pirates not particularly accurate but that's where a lot of ideas of piracy eventually stemmed from so edward thatch or teach was likely from a comfortable family and he may have taken the edward the name of edward thatch to avoid dishonoring his relations so he actually does sort of fit into the potential stereotype of the aristocratic pirate but probably not not Probably not aristocratic, but at least probably middle class, so educated. Unlike many sailors, he could read and write. So he was intelligent, capable, and charismatic. And in working through the ranks of merchant or naval vessels, he picked up the skills needed to operate large armed vessels and therefore assumed control of them. Um, Blackbeard was first heard of as a pirate uh, late in 1716. The following year, he converted a captured French merchantman into a 40-gun warship called the Queen Anne's Revenge. Um, and then he soon became notorious for outrages along the Virginia and Carolina coasts and in the Caribbean Sea. In 1718, Blackbeard established his base in a North Carolina inlet, Ocracoke Island, which is just a cool name. Um, at, the requ- at the request of Carolina planters, the Lieutenant Governor of Virginia, Alexander Spotswood, dispatched a British naval force under Lieutenant Robert M- Maynard, who after a hard fight succeeded in killing Blackbeard. Blackbeard was then decapitated and his head was affixed to the bowsprit of his ship. His headless body was thrown into the Pamilico Sound. According to legend, it swam around the ship three times before sinking. I did hear that so as well, good. Yeah. Um, So that's the story of Blackbeard. You know, he, he was very good at his job and then he became famous and then he died in a very and gruesome he way. he tried to retire and it didn't work. Yes. But he also, like, he died in a gruesome, in a gruesome battle. Um, and then legend sort of took off from there. Calico Jack and Anne Boddy and are very uh, well depicted in the TV show Black Sails. Um, Mary Reed it does not appear until the last episode, but she was also part of their gang. So John Rackham is described as a reckless character whose colourful clothes earned him the name Calico Jack. He had been quartermaster for pirate captain Charles Vane before being voted as captain himself. There is no record, as there is with many other pirates, of him resorting to torture or murder, which is nice. 
Um, however, compared to others, he was also a small fish operating a modest sloop, not warships with a flotilla, flotilla of supporting vessels, which is what people like Henry Avery and Blackbeard were doing. Yeah. They had multiple ships and they had, you they know, had warships, armadas. whereas he had probably like a brig. Um, his main fame comes from his association with Anne Bonny and Mary Reed. So he met Anne Bonny on New Providence Island. He courted her and convinced her to leave her husband and take to the sea. After returning from having Rackham's child, Anne returned to his crew dressed as a man, and Mary Reed, also in disguise, joined the crew soon after. There is very little that is known about Anne and Mary's early lives, but it's likely that they were both born um, illegitimate, so outside of wedlock, and then were brought up as boys in childhood because it was easier to be a boy, an illegitimate boy, than it was to be an illegitimate girl. Um, Rackham's downfall came as a result of stealing a sloop called the William from Nassau Harbour and the governor Woods Rogers issued a bulletin regarding the stolen sloop and Rackham and his associates. Fucking Woods Rogers. <laughs> other don't, ships, don't get me started on Woods Rogers. <laughs> other, we, I didn't cover him because he's mainly Nassau. The films don't really have much of a focus on Nassau. It's not, they take other parts of the Caribbean. Black Sails has a big focus on Nassau, but we're not covering that. We so. are not. And if you want to know about Woods Rogers, you can watch Black Sails and get a very enjoyable fictionalized version of him. Um, other ships were dispatched to catch the pirates and Rackham attempted to evade them. They were eventually caught by Captain Jonathan Barnett, a privateer working for the governor of Jamaica. Rackham's vessel was quickly disabled and boarded. Only Anne and Mary attempted to mount resistance armed with pistols and cutlasses, but their shipmates surrendered. Um, upon their eventual capture, they were all sentenced to death, but Anne and Mary's sentence was respited due to them both being pregnant. Mary, however, soon died in prison of a fever. Which we don't, un- we don't know if they were actually pregnant. But yeah, apparently they were very they were very like, mad at their crew when yes. they were fighting. They were yelling at them the whole I've done a bit of research mm. on this as well. They were mm. yelling at them the whole time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it was it sounds very funny. Like the, it's pretty great. Like to the two women of the crew are like fighting yeah. and they're like, do something, <laughs> yeah. idiots. Yeah. Which is great. Yeah. And also again, I will mention in recommendations, but you do learn a bit more about them. Uh, you do get to experience a bit more of their lives. It's fictional, but in Assassin's Creed Black Flag. <laughs> they they are very close companions of yours. Oh, great. Maybe I should play that then, even though I'm so bad at the ship stuff. <laughs> I do want to play Black Flag again. Um, yes, and we don't know what happened to Anne after, like, we don't know if she died in prison. We don't know if she was if she was um, pardoned. We, we just don't know. She completely disappears from the record after that. Um, There's some theories, though, if I remember. I don't remember what they were. I didn't look into those because we have so much to cover. A like, lot. We're going on to our next our next lady pirate, and you might recognize this one from a, a depiction potentially in Pirates of the Caribbean. This is Ching Shi. So while there are other female pirates more or less well-known in history, Ching Shi is potentially represented in the Pirates film as the female Chinese leader in the pirate court, Madame Ching. I'm trying to think of the, the quote that she says, but I forgot. <laughs> she says something, but yeah. yeah. So she's also known as Madame Ching. Her fleet of junks sailed the South China Sea in the early 19th century. In the ports and rivers of southern China, entire villages lived and worked on boats. So it was a very different sort of lifestyle. Women in these villages worked alongside the men fishing, trading, and handling sailing junks. The same conditions that many pirate communities in this area operated on. And it was not unusual for women to command junks and sail them into battle. Ching Shi was a former prostitute who married pirate leader Cheng the first in 1801 between the two of them they created a federation of pirates which at its height included around 50,000 pirates wow. by, by 1805 pirates dominated the coastal waters of southern china 
They attacked fishing and cargo vessel, vessels, lived off the provisions, living off the provisions and performing raids on coastal villages. They ransomed ships and ran a protection racket in the area. When Cheng the first died, Qing Shi took over, appointing the adopted son of her husband as commander of their most powerful fleet, the Red Flag Fleet, seducing him and eventually marrying him. Like, she's just, she's just winning at life consistently throughout this entire story. Qing Shi was, a command, was commander-in-chief of the Federation and Chang Pao, which was the other guy, was in charge of the day-to-day operations. They had a strict code of contact, conduct, so a very strict pirate code, with punishments harsher than the ones adopted by the pirates in the West Indies in the Golden Age of Piracy. The punishment for disobeying, disobeying an order or for stealing from the common treasure was death by beheading. For deserting or going absent without leave was to have your ears cut off. For concealing or holding back goods was whipping. If the offence was repeated, it was death. The rape of a female captive was also punishable by death. If the woman agreed to have sex with her captor, the man was beheaded and the woman was thrown overboard with a weight attached to her legs. Wow, hey. Yep. That's... Consent is bad? I, it's just so... Because I don't... It's very complicated because it's, it's, it's refreshing that the rape of a female ca- captive was punishable by death. Because yeah, that's absolutely nice. rape, like that. rape is wrong. Yeah. The... the uh, the part where, sh- where they've decided that both parties should be punished if the person consents, but I sp- like I don't believe I don't necessarily agree. like I don't know the reasoning for that because most likely if if it it probably wasn't still consensual. The woman probably said yes because yeah, she thought that something bad duress. would happen. Yeah, 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 would if she didn't. So like it sucks that she still gets punished. I don't so I don't know the reasoning for that, but. Yeah. Maybe it's because they had a spy who was like, I'm going to say yes and just sleep with all the men and get all the info. And they're like, no, nah, if you sleep with any I'm, of them, and you're, yeah. you're going to die. I'm sure there's, I'm sure they had a good reason. Like they seem like they have very, like they have laid out rules that make a lot of sense. You know what? I don't know a lot of people said this, but pirates seemed quite reasonable. <laughs> quite reasonable. <laughs> I mean, to a degree. I mean, it's quite reasonable if you were a pirate. Yeah. It wasn't obviously because if you had a lot of gold, probably heaps, not quite reasonable. Heaps of pirates, heaps of people became pirates because the conditions on their on their normal commercial ships were so bad. Yeah. So like, if I could quit my job now and become a pirate, I probably would. It's like a great deal. <laughs> I don't think modern day piracy. Is, no, it's is, different is, vibe. It's is, a very yeah, different. It's vibe. very different. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure like. Maybe it was a similar vibe back then. It's just that we do have a very romanticized idea of what pirates were, but they were also reasonably democratic. It's just that you know, if you if you're a commercial, if you work for the East India Trading Company, if you're a commercial merchant, you might be a bit fucked. Yeah. So you know, it's all about where you're standing. Um. So Ching Shi had many victories against those who tried those who tried to bring her down. At the height of her power, committed two hundred junks each armed with 20 to 30 cannon and able to host up to 400 pirates with a number of smaller river drunks and other coastal vessels available. So she had a big operation. Um, however, her reign as a pirate leader came to an end in 1810 when the government offered an amnesty to the pirates as attempts as attempts to count, counter them increased. So Ching Shi decided to negotiate from a position of power. So she went unarmed to the governor general accompanied by 17 women and children as a as bargaining chips um because they were they would aware they were aware that potential casualties could be 
enforced by pirates. Yeah. So she she took the position of power and she went and negotiated. It was agreed that the pirates would surrender their junks and weapons, but could keep all their booty and could join the army if they wished. Chang Pao was given the rank of lieutenant and allowed to keep 20 junks as a private fleet. 17,000 pirates formally surrendered. 226 junks were handed over. 60 pirates were banished, 151 were permanently exiled, and 126 were executed. But you can have to consider the numbers. Like, she had however many ships with 400 pirates on them, and only 126 of them were executed. Like, it's pretty good numbers. Yeah. They must have been the worst of the worst. Yeah. Ching Shi had a son with Chang Pao and retired to open a gambling house when Chang Pao died and retired as a wealthy woman. She died at the age of 69 because she's a boss. I think she's my favorite pirate because she's just can she just owns, she just she wins lived, she, the yeah, entire she, time. She basically just like she kept rising through the ranks yeah. and she didn't like she just she just yep and then she got out. She was like yeah. I'm done. She was like Henry Avery hands. except she did a better job of yeah. like she did more pirating than Henry Avery. Yeah. So she did a better job of it. But Henry Avery also was like I've got my riches. I'm done now. We're done. I'm stepping back. So the end of piracy in the Caribbean was a bit of a bit of a rough time. Uh, so piracy reached its peak around the year 1720. Around 1,500 to 2,000 pirates were operating in the Caribbean and North American waters at the time. Due to the sparse populations of the islands in this area and their vulnerability to have heavy arms, like they didn't have a lot of forts. They were often quite, like they, they're not building like townhouses. They're building like huts, like wood huts. Yeah. Like they're working with the materials they have. Um, even so because of that, even just two pirate ships armed with 50 guns had enough firepower to be invincible against any foes less than a naval warship. So that's why piracy boomed so much. It's just the people couldn't defend themselves and the Navy didn't have enough warships to go around. So the, they decided to tackle the pirate problem in a number of, number of ways. The first was universal pardons. If you're a pirate, you could come in, unless like unless you were really, really notorious, you could come in and collect a universal yeah, pardon. because that was like a lot of people were like turned to piracy and were like, oh, I'm not getting a fair deal. Yeah. And then once they were a pirate, there's like, there's no going back. Like yeah. England won't accept me back. I This is my life now. Yeah. So then one of those, English was like, well, we'll probably get a, lo- a number of them if we offer them a pardon. They'll yeah. probably be like, I'm done. I want to. And clever. Yeah. And then they also upgraded their naval patrols so that way they could catch more pirate ships. There was a reward for capture so privateers and and private vessels could also go on the hunt for pirates. Um, There was – they gave out licenses to attack and capture pirate ships. And, of course, once attacked and captured, trial and execution. And it was expected um, by the populace of captured pirates that they would be penitent when sentenced to death, that they would – say, I'm so sorry, I made so many mistakes. And for sure, some did. And they were often visited by preachers trying to get them to, to, to repent, like priests would go and be like, repent. And However, some pirates, and in fact, a number of them, refused defiant to the end. They were like, no. Um, and some of them have just really, really good, I'd like, I hate to say it, but like the way they go to their execution is... Um, Awful, but also quite romantic. Like, it's quite, you sort of like, yeah, stick it to him. So, like, for instance, 28-year-old. Like scene of uh, World's End, or is it? Yeah, it's World's End, where they're like, sir, they're singing. Yeah, sort <laughs> of like that, except, like, more dramatic. So, like, for instance, 28-year-old Dennis McCarty 
had changed his clothes and wore long blue ribbons at his wrists, knees, and on his cap and on his cap in the manner of a prize fighter. So he went dressed up. Um, he appeared cheerful and defiant. Up on the ramparts, he had declared that there was a time when many brave fellows on the island would not have allowed him to die like a dog, and at the same time pulled off his shoes, kicking them over the parapet of the fort, saying he promised not to die with his shoes on. <laughs> Thomas Morris, age 22, also wore ribbons like McCarty, but in his case, they were red. I'm just loving this idea. They weren't wearing ribbons. Yeah. Like I don't know what... That just makes me feel so... Like, I, I just... I don't know. It's just they pirates. They were free men. They were they like, were, I'm going to yeah, go out on my own men. terms and as much as I can. They wanted... And they were like, I'm going to make you notice me. And the fact that I don't regret... I have no regrets. Um, so Thomas Morris said, we have a new gum- governor, but a harsh one. And he wished that he'd been a greater plague to the islands than he had been. Like amazing to like be like to be executed and everyone hates you. You say, I wish I'd been worse. I wish I'd plagued you <laughs> with my burn. presence more. And then there's Captain William Fly is the last like example of this. So he walked to the place of execution with a nosegay, which is a small bunch of flowers that he would use to ward off bad smells um, in his hand, calling out to the people of the crowd as he went. And I can just imagine like, Yo, what's up? Hey, good to see you. Thanks for coming. Thanks for coming. Hey, I love you, random citizen. (laughs) Exactly. Um, He mounted the stage with a spring in his step, reproached the hangman for not not understanding his trade, and showed him how to manage the ropes in the most effectual manner. (laughs) They gave the executioner a a lesson in how to... He's like, if you really want to hang me, you've got to do this. Oh, your that knot work is so sloppy. Let me me show you how to do it. I'm not going out on shoddy work. So it's just, it's just, yeah, I don't know. There's something very heartening about these stories. They just seemed so chill. They were like, this is the life I've picked. If this is how it's going, this is how it's going. And I mean, life was hard then. Potentially they thought that it was better. It was better to go out, you know, having been a pirate, having been notorious in their own way and make a splash at their execution than it would be to try and go back to living a normal life where it was difficult. Yeah. Because they're not. They're not aristocrats. They're not leaving, living the easy life. And sailors had it really tough. And they were like, fuck that. I want to go back to that. That was terrible. My captain pissed on me, you know? Great. I'm done with that. <laughs> but that's that's <laughs> yeah. what it was like. They were really bad. Once you and have they a taste could be... of freedom, you can't go back to getting pissed on. <laughs> and they could be whipped for, for zero offense. They could have their fingers broken. They could be beaten with sticks. Like, it's just not, it's just not a good time it's to be a sailor. Fun. Whereas being a pirate, you know, you get share, you get equal shares in every plunder you bring in. You get to vote your captain, and if he's bad, you get to vote him out and say, "I won't be captain instead." Like it's, it was just a better deal. So in terms of like mythology, there's oh, there's more. I would say, like bits of it. Like it's not they don't have like a fully comprehensive mythology going on. They just sort of pick the bits that sound good. So like for instance, Calypso, she um is. Bound in mortal form in the movies to the mortal form of Tia Dharma, who is a voodoo priestess, who is super cool. Love her witchy vibes. Like, everything about her is a vibe. The way she looks, amazing. Yeah, her, st- her aesthetic is very cool. It is very cool. And every time she appears on screen with her, like, Jamaican patois, you're just like, oh, just keep talking. Recite me, like, a prophecy. She just kind of floats around. Yeah. And it's like, you know everything. So you, you know, know everything. more than everything, than everyone else here. <laughs> so, um, but she is the sea goddess Calypso. Um, in Greek, Calypso is a Greek mythology nymph. So she was a goddess nymph of the mythical island of Aegea. 
and a daughter of the Titan Atlas. She was detained um, by the hero. She detained the hero Odysseus for many years in the course of his wanderings after the fall of Troy, but was eventually commanded by Zeus to release him. So she just lives on an island, and it's a nice island. And Odysseus comes, and she's like, "You stay with me." And then eventually she's commanded him. She's commanded to let him go. He goes, and that's it. That's all you hear about Calypso. She's not very. She's not a particularly fleshed out character. <laughs> You know, she's just there to be beautiful and detain Odysseus yeah. to stop him from going home. That's all she's Doesn't meant to like do. a terrible job. Um, so I think Tia Dalma's incarnation of her is, is sort of more interesting because, you know, it, it's it's a great story. The, you know, the goddess, the sea goddess and the pirates decided to trap her so that way they could rule the seas. And then they release her because they're like, well, fuck it. It's better if she rules the seas than Carla Beckett does. Yeah. So Davy Jones also appears in the film. So the phrase Davy Jones's locker is an idiom which refers to the seabed, the resting place of thousands of sailors drowned at sea. Sailors use the phrase to denote the afterlife of seafarers or even objects, including ships that are destined to be rested on the bottom of the sea. So he's not actually a person. He's, he's an idea. Um, the first reference to Davy Jones's locker dates back to the 18th century, during which it was pro- popularized as a nautical superstition among sailors and pirates. The name Davy Jones is often re- represented to be um, the devil, saint, or god of the seas. So he eventually took on like a higher form of personification, but it just started as like a saying. Yeah. Who was the, who started the saying though? I, was it know. just like some guy fell and drowned? They're like, oh, bye bye, David they, Jones. They, you know, they, I think they had three main um, ideas about who it could be. Like one was an actual pirate called Davy Jones, another was like a pub owner, and another one was some other guy. But they're not compelling stories, so I didn't yeah, include them. It's fair. just like this guy was named Davy Jones. It could be him, and it's like, well, that's not interesting. <laughs> it's way more interesting, and they were just like, we just came up with this idea that it's Davy Jones locker. And now he's a god. It's just, it's cool. Um, the Flying Dutchman is Davy Jones's ship in the Pirate's Canon. In European maritime legend, it is a spectre ship doomed to sail forever. Its appearance to seamen, seamen is believed to signal imminent disaster. In the most common version of its origin story, the captain van der Decken, who works for the Dutch um, version of the East India Trading Company, gambles his salvation on a rash pledge to round the Cape of Good Hope during a storm, and is so determined, uh, is so condemned to that to that course for eternity. So repeatedly just sailing around it forever. Um, in some versions, he he is offered a chance to stop sailing by the devil if he can redeem himself through love and could return to land every seven years to find the love of a good woman to redeem his soul, ah, which is so probably they where that. they lifted the actual idea, of the, the connecting it to Davy Jones with this idea of the Flying Dutchman as a ship. He can return to land every decade, so 10 years as opposed to seven, to visit his the love of his life. Who is the goddess of the sea. Yes, well, and then it's Elizabeth Swan because Will becomes Davy Jones. Yeah. Another legend of the Flying Dutchman depicts a Captain Falkenberg sailing forever through the North Sea, playing at dice for, for his soul with the devil. And I love that, the idea of just this ship and then there's the devil and this sailor just on board just playing dice yeah. the entire time. They must have pulled from that as well because they have the dice game. Yeah. They must, and like David Jones is good at it. Yeah. 
It's cool that they pulled from both. They're yeah. like, well, why pick one? Let's put all these elements together, yeah. shake it up, and, pour and out it a makes cocktail. it a more interesting legend in the film. Yeah. Um, sailors claim the Dutchman has led ships astray, causing them to crash on hidden rocks or reefs, which also sort of plays into the Kraken because they always like when the ship stops and the Kraken said they say we've hit a reef. We've hit a reef. They say that if you look into the fierce into a fierce storm brewing off the Cape of Good Hope, you'll see the captain and his skeletal crew, which is also interesting because it's. It, the they're fish people in like the film, but the skeletal crew does play into sort of Barbosa's crew. Yeah. So there's a I lot be, of I guess they went here. fish because they already did the skeleton yeah. as well. Like what are they? They can be fish. Fish people. Um, the most recognized logical explanation explanation for the sightings of the Flying Dutchman is a superior mar- mirage, which is also called a Fata Morgana. Um, according to scientists, this is a natural optical phenomenon which occurs after moisture and as- atmospheric conditions combined with light results in a displaced image of a dis- of distant objects. And it, o- it also tricks your eye- eyes into seeing objects that don't really exist there. This phenomenon can be seen at sea or on land or even in deserts where it can involve almost any kind of distant object. This illusion at sea sometimes makes a ship that is beyond the limits of the naked of the naked eye reflect on the water, making us see a ship that was floating above the sea. That's that's their explanation for it from it, but I personally like the idea of a ghost ship. That's yeah, cool. Yeah, ghost ships are cool. I mean, there are plenty of like other ghost ships online if you want to Google those, but in this case, the Flying Dutchman is, I would say, the most well known ghost it ship. Is the ghost ship? Yes, the original Spectre ship. So then there's the Kraken. Um, so according, I believe it's pronounced in the original Kraken. Kraken. No, because <laughs> I noticed this um, in the film when I was watching it because I'd just written the bit about the Kraken. It's a Scandinavian mythological beast. So I'll, I'll talk to you and I'll talk about the bit about the movie that I'm remembering. So according to Scandinavian mythology, the Kraken is a horrifying giant sea creature said to be one mile long. Stories generally describe it as a terrifying, enormous octopus or squid-like creature that attacks ships. According to some tales, the Kraken was so huge that its body could be mistaken for an island. And the Kraken is first mentioned in the Ova Oda. Sorry, am I scared? I don't, I'm not, I don't know Scandinavian. You don't know Scandi. A 13th century Icelandic saga involving two sea monsters, the Hafgafa sea mist and the Lindbaka heatherback. The Hafgafa is believed to be a reference to the Kraken. The Kraken had a knack for harassing ships and legends said it would attack vessels with its strong arms. If this strategy failed, the beast would start swimming in circles around the ship, creating a fierce maelstrom to drag the vessel down. The Kraken could devour a ship's entire crew at once, but despite its fearsome reputation, the monster could also bring benefits. It swam accompanied by huge schools of fish that cascaded down its back when it emerged from the water. Brave fishermen could thus risk going near the beast to secure an enormous catch of fish. In the movie, uh, Rigetti and Pintel um, are in a rowing boat and they're going towards one of the islands and they're arguing about the Kraken and how to pronounce it. And I only noticed it because I'd just written the bit about the Kraken. Um, and Pintel's call, Pintel's like, it's the Kraken. And Rigetti says, actually, according to the original Scandinavian, it's Kraken. <laughs> and then um, Pintel says, it's a mythological beast. I can call it whatever I want. <laughs> I, I love that scene. It's also because um, that's one of the moments where Rigatti is like, he's like, this. he just has these weird moments yeah, of knowledge where yeah. he sounds really profound. Yeah. I love the bit where the Bible where he's like, it's the Bible, you get credit for trying. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, there have been other tales of huge, many armed, headed or horned sea creatures that exist from ancient times. The one that I'm most f- familiar with is the Greek legend of the Skylar. 
So Skyla is a monster with six heads that Odysseus must sail past during his travels. Skylab was a sea monster who hunt who haunted the rocks of a narrow strait opposite the whirlpool of Charibotus. Um also the giant whirlpool that um opens up in World's End is also reminiscent of that yeah. of that myth. Um so ships who sailed too close to her rocks would So you had to like for, you had to sail very carefully between the two, but um, Odysseus decide, has been told by Cersei, I think, to sail closer to Skylar because it's she'll, it's easy. Like he'll lose men, but it's easier to navigate than going near the whirlpool, which would definitely drag them down. So they would lose six men to her ravenous darting heads. Homer describes Skylar as a creature with twelve dangling feet, six long necks, and grisly heads lined with a triple row of sharp teeth. Her voice was likened to the yelping of dogs. According to late classical writers, she was once a beautiful nymph loved by the seagull Glaucus, but her jealous rival, the witch Circe, employed magic to transform her into a monster. Older poets, however, envisioned Skylar simply as a monster born into a monstrous family. So, like, there are other versions of these yeah. giant, weird sea creatures. Giant squid because that kill. there are terrifying things in our oceans. Yeah, we don't know what lies at the bottom of Davy Jones' we locker. We don't, and we probably shouldn't find out. Yeah, the only person that probably will find out is James Cameron. He will discover <laughs> He <it>. will <laughs> find out. <laughs> but first he's going to find Atlantis. Yeah, first he'll do that. Um, so there's also a common lore with pirates around buried treasure. Um, Captain Kidd is the most likely pirate responsible for that myth. Most pirates spent their loot rather than burying it. They went out on the town and they had a good night. They they were like, well, I've got five hundred good dollars here, and it's time to party. We go into the clubs. They spent. They gambled. They did. They womanized on mortal pleasures. They did. Material goods was the was the way it was. So the story with Captain Kidd goes that um, he has buried gold and silver from the plundered plundered ship Quedar Merchant on Gardiner's Island near New York before he was arrested. Kidd's exploits, his trial and execution, meant that he became quite famous. And therefore, his like the 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 buried treasure that he was that was supposed to be buried became really big and received way more attention than it should, and then it made its way into lore and legend. Um, originally, he started as a pirate hunter. However, he was eventually branded a pirate after a lack of success on catching any pirates, and he um, went on the make himself. <laughs> Uh, when I love he, the idea. It's like, you're bad at your job. You're now a pirate. No. And then they excelled at being a pirate. No, no. So he, <laughs> it happened after he, so it happened after he actually became a pirate, but he went out, like he had this scheme to go out and catch pirates. He would hire, like he, they'd hire a treasure. ship. He had backers. He would go catch pirates. He would steal their treasure and sell it off. And then he and his backers would get lots of money. Except he couldn't find any pirates and he couldn't catch any. So he was like, fuck, I'm going to become a pirate myself. And then they're like, you're a pirate. And he's like, fuck. Can't beat him, join him. So when he claimed the Quetta merchant, it was carrying a cargo of silk, calico, sugar, opium, and iron. Kid came alongside the ship flying French flags. And this is where he's like quite devious. So he was flying French flags. And most merchant ships at the time carried passes for lots of different countries. So they couldn't be claimed by privateers working for an enemy nation. Um, because obviously pirate privateers would be in the waters and they'd be like, you're a French ship, but I'm Spanish. I'm taking your loot. Yeah. Stuff like that. So when the captain of the Quetta merchant saw French flags, he gave Kid a French pass. However, the ship actually, the ship wasn't actually French. It belonged to Armenian owners, but Kid claimed it anyway. 
because his license gave him the right to attack and capture French ships. So he's like, you gave me a French pass, you're mine now. He escorted the ship to the nearest port to quickly sell its cargo. After seeking some more prizes, the British government, at the request of the East India Trading Company, declared him a pirate. When interviewed, he gave a detailed account of the goods he had, including bales of silk, muslins, and calicoes, tons of sugar and iron, 50, ca- 50 cannon, 80 pounds of silver, and a 40-pound bag of gold. However, the myth of the buried treasure most likely arose from, like, basically a security deposit he left with John Gardner, the proprietor of Gardner's Islands, just in case things went wrong. He left him with, like, you know, a little stash. A go bag. Yeah, exactly. And it basically amounted to five bells of cloth, cloth, a chest of fine goods, and a box containing 52 pounds of gold. It wasn't buried, though. He just left it there just in case he needed it. I'm just, I'm just leaving this in your garage. Look after it for me. Exactly. I'll be back. Um, but he wasn't back because he got arrested and he was trialed and executed. But then they, this myth sprung up around the idea of buried treasure. Um, and then it just continued and now pirates have buried treasure. For instance, like, they think Blackbeard had buried treasure. He 100, 100% did not. Um, he spent, well, like most pirates, he just spent it all. They, they got it and then they spent it. They went and they had a drink. They like things. Well, that was the thing. They never, the wages on like, um, like commercial ships were really bad. And not just that, you might not even get paid. Like you could just get IOU slips. Like yeah. you'll be repaid eventually. So like if you have money coming in, they're not going to bank it. They're going to spend, spend it. it. And I think like lots of people also would send it to like families in England yep. who they are supporting. Good on them. Yeah. Um, so there are a couple of like pirate superstitions that also obviously make their way into the movies. The so for spot. instance... <laughs> Spin around a circle. <laughs> That's just general superstition, but it is funny to watch, isn't it? <laughs> Where they, they're like brushing down their clothes, spinning around a circle. So and then everyone kind of like looks at them and copies. Great. Yep. Um, so there's an idea that women are bad luck on ships. So this hap- this is said in a movie, you know, quite a few times. Women were supposed to be bad luck on board because they distracted the crew, which would anger the sea, causing treacherous conditions as revenge. This idea that the sea is... The sea is your lady and you shouldn't be looking at any other ladies. Exactly. You know, that whole... The song Brandy, think of that. That's that's what they're getting at. However, naked woman, women calmed the sea, which is why so many figureheads are, are women with naked breasts. Because ah. the sea will look at the, that, that figurehead of a woman with naked breasts and be like, I'm like, so ah, calm. Boobs. I just want to do calm <laughs> sea. No storms. Lovely breasts, though. <laughs> Thank you. So that's why why women can't be on board, but you can have a naked woman on the bow of your ship. Makes sense. Um, you can't whistle on a ship or you'll whistle up the wind and cause a storm. On boats and ships, whistling was also taboo because it was associated with coded communications be- between mutineers. Yeah. Um, the cook was usually excused because as long as he was whistling, he was not stealing the food. <laughs> I love it. It's like no whistling except for the cook. Then we know he's not eating our food. <laughs> yeah. We're, we're, we're superstitious, but we're practical. <laughs> Having bananas on board is considered bad luck. They just didn't, they they just can't, didn't get they, enough potassium, did they? Potassium, yeah. They're really low on that. Um, if they'd had bananas, orange would is they? Good. Bananas bad. Yeah. Oranges, well, or, which one stops them from getting scurvy? Citrus. Oranges. So, yeah, so oranges, yeah. lemons. So that's how they'd stop the scurvy. Yeah, but they were like, we had drilled a line of bananas and none of that shit on board. They just please. couldn't comp- They're like, what is the shape? It makes no sense. <laughs> it must be evil. <laughs> evil bananas. It's so yellow. What is this bright color doing with that shit? <laughs> Throw it overboard. <laughs> um, 
While in many cultures a black cat is considered unlucky, European sailors considered adopting a black ship's cat because it would bring good luck. There is some logic to this belief. Cats kill rodents. So having one on board a ship is a good idea because it keeps the rodents away. Cats were believed to have miraculous powers that could protect ships from dangerous weather. Another popular belief was that cats could start storms through magic stored in their tails. Amazing. Um, if a ship's cat cat fell or was thrown overboard, it was thought that it would summon a terrible storm to sink the ship. That if and that, that if the ship was able to vi- to survive, it would be cursed with nine years of bad luck. Um, other beliefs included if a cat cat licked its fur against the grain, it meant a hailstorm was coming. If it sneezed, it meant rain, and if it was fris- frisky, it meant wind. So cats tell the weather. I love love it. Cats on ships. Speaking of cats on ships. Uh, this is just a fun little fact of what I'm trying to do with my time. I'm playing Assassin's Creed Valhalla at the moment mm. and you can get a cat on your boat. So I'm trying Yay. to do that at the moment. Yay. It's a side mission you have to do. You get Amazing. a cat and it lives on your boat because yes. pets. Love it. So, so excited to play Valhalla. That's going to be good. Oh my God. Pets on boats. So good. So good. <laughs> um, so yeah, there's just some superstitions that pirate sailor superstitions and some of them feature in the movie. I would love to see a moment in Pirates of the Caribbean where they're like, throw those bananas overboard. They're bad luck. <laughs> It would be so funny. Um, but yeah, great movies, um, good myths. Sailors have just some, just some wacky ideas. Yeah, they very superstitious lot, yep. but you spend a lot of time out on the sea, so who can blame them? So with that, we've there. sort of come to the end of the episode. We only have our philosophy worldview to sort of wrap up. Um, I, I think the main view that Pirates of the Caribbean is positing is that pirates are fun in fiction and interesting in history. Not to say that they're good people, absolutely don't say that but that they're interesting that their lives are interesting their deeds are interesting and they will always fascinate us and also if they're fictional they're lots of fun to play with yeah um the other thing is actually like a quote from Weatherby Swan Governor Swan at the end of the first movie and I sort of think it sort of sums up the arc of at least the first three movies in like discussing the idea of and the appeal of um you know, piracy. piracy. And he says, perhaps on the rare occasion, pursuing the right course demands an act of piracy. Piracy itself can be the right course. So, you know, sometimes it, it's hard to do the right thing. And sometimes in order to do what you believe is right, you can't always do what is necessarily lawfully good. Yeah, because I would say that um, Orlando Bloom's Will Turner starts as a lawful good. Yes. And has a change and is like i i need i do what's best whether depending on what that takes yeah it might be piracy it might be he comes he's not he's sort of like he becomes sort of more like a law like he's sort of like a neutral he becomes sort of he doesn't become evil but he's not necessarily good like he's not like he's not lawful good he's not chaotic good that's for sure so i think he falls somewhere on the neutral scale yeah whereas i feel like elizabeth was always a bit cheeky chaotic chaotic like yeah. she's always like at the start she 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 fights off those pirates that invade invade her house with no hesitation she's there for a she goes straight for a sword she's like, i'm gonna fight of course it doesn't work but like yeah. she goes straight for a sword so i think like i'm like she's willing to do what it takes to get to her end so like the thing where she kisses jack therefore not knowing that will is watching but therefore wounding both her husband to be and also chaining jack to uh, the mast so the kraken can take him that's ballsy she has some dark moments i think she's the best for that because i think more than anyone else in the form film more than in the films more than jack more than barbosa more than will 
she is a true pirate. Yeah. Like she is she's the pirate. She, not necessarily. Most them. of the decisions she's she is placed with, she makes the pirate decision. She does, and because like she is selfish, because all she really wants in the end is her and Will. Yes, she's all not overly looking at. Towards the end, when she becomes a captain, she is kind of looking out. Yeah, but only to the end game, which is like if I am a pirate and I look after my crew, I can get to Will. Yeah, and that's the end game. <laughs> yeah, and like it's also like it's like it's I want what I want, and I'm going to do what I have to do to get it. Yeah, and like I think that also comes from like her station in life. Like she was born into the upper class; there were things expected of her. But it's also a pirate. Like piracy is very freeing for because her. that's what was led to believe about Jack is that he is only con- he's selfish and yeah. himself. But it co- it it comes across less with him, and he actually, in his own way, is looking out for everyone yes. and doing. And then, but whereas. She is definitely in a, a more darker tone of like I'm yeah. doing this for myself. Yeah, and like uh, it's like when um Gibbs like after she's left Jack to the Kraken and they're at Tiadamas and they're all having that moment and she's feeling like not regretful but guilty. Yeah, she yeah. made a decision that she felt she had to make, but she didn't like the decision. No, she didn't enjoy it. But she told like she told like Gibbs and everyone that Jack chose to stay, and Gibbs says ah oh, that honest streak finally won out. Like there's this idea. Th- through like at least the first three films that there's something in Jack that is inherently good or like not inherently yeah. good but he's kind of like to be good battling himself a yeah. lot of the time but also like that if it came to like Jack runs away so that way he doesn't have to make a hard decision because inherently he doesn't like to make hard decisions because he doesn't necessarily want like he wants what he wants but he doesn't really necessarily want to hurt anyone else yeah. to get it and the hard decision is I think he he would. He knows that, like, if there was a really hard decision, as much as he'd want to be selfish, yeah, he couldn't he probably. Couldn't do it. He couldn't bring himself to do yeah. it in the end. Which is why, like, in that end scene, into the boat, it's like we can all run away. That's the best way. I know yeah. if I were to stay, but like, I reckon we can all run away. Yeah. And Elizabeth's like, no, you need to stay. Yeah. Essentially. Yeah. Um. And then there was like Barbosa, who is just cool. Like he's he's a bit. He he's he's. He's he's like a pirate, but he because he gets so much less screen time. He's just like cool and enigmatic, and he's he's there to like to eat apples and look cool. Yeah, and he's very dramatic. Like one of my favorite moments because we re- rewatched this year is the fight scene between him and Jack at the end mm. uh, of the first movie. And mm. there's like there's cool lighting in play, but it's also like there is a moment where it's like they are both immortal and they are just fighting. It's yeah. like what are we doing? Yeah, but let's keep it up, and it's it's good. And like, I think that's one of my favorite moments is. In the second, because he's absent for most of the second one. Yeah. And then he comes down he at, comes the end, at the and end. It's like, and he, this was one of the best decisions because he, he was a great apple. character. And it's so good. Yeah. Yeah, because he's, yeah, because he, he, in the, uh, at the end of the first movie, he is shot, he dies, and the green apple falls from his hands. And then at the end of the second movie, he comes down, like, Tiodama says, like, then you'll need someone who knows the way. And you're like, hell yes, he's coming. He starts coming down the stairs, and you're like, hell yes. And then he comes and he says his line, and he eats the apple, and you're like, Yes. Because he is the antagonist for most of the first movie. Yeah. But there was he was at some point Jack's second mate. Yes. And then so but he's the antagonist. And then in the second movie we get he's now on the good side. Yeah. We like him even more. And you get this competition between him and Jack, yeah. this one up and then you, yeah, you get the third movie where they're of the like he sails the ship first to retrieve Jack and then they fight on the way back over who's captain. Yeah. And it's a great dynamic. But I we don't really see much of like Barbosa as like like we don't see much of his pirate personal like we don't see the he doesn't make decisions that qualify him as a pirate in any way other than the fact that that's how he's pre- presented to us in the film like we know he's a pirate because he dresses like a pirate and he talks like a pirate but he doesn't really get much chance to act like one like he's not like will and elizabeth who are making deals on the side with every single party they can so that way they get what they want 
you know, it's not Jack who's who's double crossing everyone just so he just because he can. Like Barbosa is just sort of he's he's there as a plot device, but he's a great plot device. Yeah, 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 hundred percent. Anyway, um, that's sort of all I have for for worldview. Like, I, I pirates are rad. What else can I say? Freedom to explore and adventure. Really. Yeah, that's what. A or, or, um, is. the great speech from Black Sails really sums up what's great about pirates. But um, I can't remember all of it. The, the, the there be dragons feats, you know, don't people like the people who, England talk about pirates as they're really bad and they say like don't be a pirate, but like piracy is about freedom and it's about being who you are stuff like that yeah very good speech so at that the end brings that, you to recommendations it I brings guess. us to recommendations so if you want to know more about pirates um and where i got most of the information for this episode um bo- there's two books that i recommend which is the republic of pirates by colin woodard which covers specifically sort of um the golden age of piracy in the caribbean specifically sort of centered around nassau and it sort of covers the lives of a couple of different pirates. So like Charles Vane, Jack Rackham, Sam Bellamy, Blackbeard, people like that. Um, and then also Woods Rogers, the governor who brings them down. Um, so that's a good one if you're just sort of focusing on that. And if you're watching Black Sails and you want to know more about the actual history that goes into that, that TV show, Republic of Pirates is where it's at. Under the Black Flag by David Cordingly is just sort of a general... It covers lots of different aspects about piracy, like life at sea and being hunted and, and um, all the all the normal sort of stuff, like how it operates on a pirate ship and everything like that. And like everyday stuff, like their accords and everything like that. Um, that's what that covers. So that sort of does like more general life of piracy. It's not as specific. It covers like quite a lot of different aspects of yeah. the pirate life. Um, recommend Black Sails, um, TV Boys. show based on Robert Louis Stevenson's Treasure Island, but it's a prequel about the origins of Long John Silver. I think it perfectly meshes real world with the it fictional. Does. It's so good. It is. I, I, the more I think about it, the more I'm like, it. yeah, it tells this really grounded tale with all these, surrounded with these real characters, but the, the narrative, the fictional characters are woven so it's well so into good. it that it's... Um, and yeah, it mwah, has chef like, kiss. It, it, it expands upon the character of Flint and Billy Barnes. It's so good. Um, it's it's great. And it's also queer, which is delightful. And also, like, if you were interested, like, we talk about pirates as a democracy. If you want a great understanding of mm. that, the politics and the democracy within, like, not even just the pirate crews, but their relationship with Nassau yeah. and who runs Nassau. It's very political and it's great yeah. understanding of, like, because you kind of see, and it, it's also a flip on, like, England are the monsters. And, yeah. like, they have their, like, they're honorable. They have this politics, but also they have their dark mode. It's great. Yeah, it's, just it's great. so good. Cannot um, speak highly enough of that show. Also recommend Muppets Treasure Island if you're looking for something lighter. I love Muppets yeah, Treasure Island. Um, that was a great childhood movie for us, so highly recommend. Um, again, I know I recommended every episode <laughs> something from the franchise, but Assassin's Creed Black Flag, one of my favorite Assassin's Creed games. One of, I know a lot of people hold it up as one of the best pirate games I've ever played. I know get past the shit mechanics. The story is great. I go back and regularly watch the ending um, on YouTube and have a little bit of a, a, a sad moment, but also a heart. Well, it's beautiful. Um, and you, yeah, a lot of the characters and names we've mentioned are yeah. throughout and you become your friends. Other thing I would like to recommend, I have very, very recently been getting into a lot of uh, prop movie prop stuff oh, yeah. and there's a podcast I listen to, but Disney plus has a show called prop culture and I rewatched the episode last night. They do the third or fourth episode is on 
Pirates of the Caribbean, Black Pearl. It's very interesting. They look at some of the costumes and like, because that's half the magic of this is yeah. the location in St. Vincent, the costumes, yeah. and they look at the original ride nice. and how, what, like the shots in the movie that are from the ride. Very, if you're yeah. interested in going a bit deeper, very interesting as well. I watched that episode on Lion Witch in the Wardrobe and it was so good. So good. I, should, I haven't watched that one, but I will. Yeah, it's good. So that's my recommendations. Oh, great. Well, we've come to the end of the episode. That's the end. Uh, Do you have drink- a sign off? Yeah, I was going to be like, thank you for listening. Uh, drink up me hearties, yo-ho. Sweet. <laughs> hey, guys, just a quick announcement before we finish up today. Just uh, letting you all know we're going to be taking a bit of a break. So um, there won't be an episode for uh, January. And uh, we will be back in February 2021 for more Second World Problems. So uh, just to repeat that, we'll be taking a break. And uh, there'll be no episode for January, but we'll be back in Feb. So uh, have a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. And we'll be back with uh, plenty more worlds to explore next year. This has been a Sparky Trap Radio production. For more Spiky Trap radio content, please head to spikytrap.com.